Welcome back to Geek Life, the indie comics podcast on Pandamanga.com. I'm JP. As always with me is my fearless co-host, Joe. Hello, hello, hello. And back with us again, well, a permanent resident, we have, we, we leave him locked up in here, is Marcus. They give me bread sometimes. This is good. It's nice. Sometimes, sometimes. If I'm good. <laughs> and then back again after a short hiatus, uh, welcome back, you guys. We have Neuro. Hello. And Pinku. I didn't get any bread. Uh, well, you know. But then again, we don't leave you locked up here. Oh, you want bread? <laughs> no soup for you. Ah, oh, y'all are dicks. <laughs> so, how you guys been? Haven't seen you guys in a while. What's what's going on? Art school, man. Art school. How is that going? Hurts. It hurts, Great. and there's lots of sleeping on campus, right? Yeah, just like if you time. go to any lounge at CCA, there's going to be like 20 people on couches just dead, <laughs> tangled up in their portfolios or whatever the nonsense they're in, they, they're brought with them. With laptops screaming Lloyd or... Oh, yeah. We're just in the lounge one day, and all of a sudden, I just... We kept hearing this out of nowhere, Lloyd, Lloyd, because art school, I guess. So I just wrote it off, but then I just heard it the whole week, and it was somebody's laptop. How strange. Yeah, anyway. So, Marcus, you were at... At the time of this recording, you had just recently been at Ape. Ape. So tell us how, how that oh, went. Lucky. Ape, uh, it was fun seeing a lot of the creators. Uh, sales weren't what I wanted them to be. I didn't make a lot of money off of it, but uh, it was really nice seeing a lot of indie comics. There was no Marvel or DC to be found, with the exception of fan art. Mm, copious fan art. Yeah, lots, of, lots fan of fan art. I would call it the relative alternative press expo which then make the acronym rape which is how i felt about what i made in money <laughs> and would also be a good segue into what you told us about uh <laughs> i had i had some fun customers uh people that were really excited about the book other people that had some really strange requests if anyone's picked up malaman issue one there's a blank spot on the inside cover of issue one that i will happily draw a sketch for anyone who purchases it i remember that and uh this guy comes by my booth and says well what will you draw? He's total bro. He's got like a tight shirt, big muscles. And my brother, who's my kind of salesman at the con, says, well, he'll draw anything. And he's like, anything? Uh, <laughs> and I, I'm thinking at this point, oh, You're God. starting to turn green. You're like, Yeah, oh, here God. it comes. Here it comes. And he looks at me. And he's like, will you draw a dick? And my brother happily says, of course he will. <laughs> You're like, so thanks, bro. The next thing you know, I told him to come back in 20 minutes, and I'm drawing Malaman with a big dick. Now, the best part is Malaman's kind of veiny anyway. Yeah. Oh, right. <laughs> Did you take a picture at least? I didn't take a picture uh, of, of the final artwork. You, you, wanted, you wanted to just not have to remember it? It's, you know, it's going to be a rare piece of uh, valuable <laughs> merchandise someday that's going to show that's up awesome. and haunt me. Um, but then he comes back with uh, bro number two with long hair. He's, he's, I call this guy Surfer Bro. And he says, check this out, guy. Check this out. And they opened the book, and I swear they high-fived. They were so excited to see my character with a dick. <laughs> what, what were they doing at Ape in the first place? I didn't think somebody like that would have even heard of something like... Well, they were probably walking down the street and saw a bunch of girls in costumes. Like, oh, dude, bro, we totally got to go in. Bro, dude, bro, dude, oh, bro. Inside, man. bro, dude, or, dude. Like, I, I don't know. I would have like been <laughs> been trying to hold back like you know the burning question, were you, are you lost? I... <laughs> <laughs> That's that's pretty good. <laughs> At that point, I was just so happy to make three dollars that I was like, "Here it goes." <laughs> oh man! Well, you know, bros love comics now because Christopher Nolan's the man, bro. Oh, oh. is that is that? But indie com like like indie comics? Do they even know what those, that those exist? I don't know. I think that the, the whole like geek chic thing is is starting to like backlash a little bit because now people think that geeky stuff is cool. Even though they have no clue. Cool, I'll take your money. Yeah, I mean that's so, yeah. that's all well and good. I actually can remember having a convert. Well, I guess what I'll finish my thought. I was going to say that I think sometimes, though, you get these sort of like train wrecks <laughs> where it's just like, I like this because it's cool. OK, and it's like, what is happening? I guess I shouldn't be a dick about it, because at the same time, I mean, it's, it's good that those people are it's reading great. Comics. It's great that there's more mm. geeky stuff going on. I'm, I'm happy. But it is funny that you you have these sort of just like awful social train wrecks that happen sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, I can remember talking to Justin, who is one of the writers for Artistic Monk, and he <laughs> he was trying to pitch this really like deep geek, like not a lot of people were going to get it unless you were like a, you know, trolling around on 4chan and B and all that kind of stuff. Like you wouldn't have got the joke in the comic. And I was like, man, I mean, it's really funny, but you know, the audience is going to be smaller than it should be. We need to try and have things work. I mean, we already had somebody rage at us because we made a Ouija joke on <laughs> like literally somebody I had to delete it. It was terrible. Like, it was guy. like just a bunch of anger about like, what the, who is, this is fucking bullshit. Like seriously angry. Cause he didn't know who Ouija was anyway. So there was already precedent for people being kind of like confused and mad about it. And I was like, dude, what's your problem? He's like, oh, man, screw normal people. Screw people that don't get it. And I was like, we want their money, too. 
<laughs> What's yeah. wrong with that? <laughs> and, and any community is going to have a certain amount of inside jokes. It's just like oh, yeah. it's part of your initiation. You got to learn the memes. Yeah, I think that getting to know the inside jokes is good stuff. So, all right, well, let's uh, let's go ahead and and segue into our topic of the week. This week we are talking about the Boston Metaphysical Society. This is a really cool comic. Madeline, who wrote the story, and this is the creator of the Boston Metaphysical Society, she described it once as steampunk Victorian Ghostbusters, which is pretty appropriate, I think. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, she's uh, she's pretty darn cool. We had, had a lot of fun. We actually caught up with her at uh, the Big Wow Comic Fest a little while ago. Uh, excuse me. The admin and I had a chance to sit down or I guess stand up at her table and, and have a good long conversation. And we recorded it. And so why don't we go ahead and play that for you guys now? Then when we get back, we'll get into uh, talking about the comic. Hey, everybody. This is JP from Pandamanga.com. I'm here speaking with Madeline Holly Rosing from the Boston Metaphysical Society. Thank you for having me, John. Awesome. So tell us about your comic. The story is about an ex-Pinkerton detective and his spirit photographer partner who battles supernatural forces in late 1800s Boston. So spirit photographer as in she takes pictures of spirit, not she is a spirit. That is correct. Okay. She's also a medium. Oh, all right. All yeah, right. she has psychic abilities. So it's sort of like old-fashioned ways to interact with the other side. That is correct. Okay, very cool. So can you tell us a little bit about maybe uh, what's going on in the first issue or so? Well, the first issue is what in writer's speak we call the creation of the team. Sure, okay. <laughs> so more than just these two then? Yes. The society. There's three, yeah, there's society. There's actually three people, and essentially it's a detective agency. Nice. In very short term, you could call them Victorian Ghostbusters. Awesome. <laughs> As part of the team is Samuel Hunter, okay. uh, Caitlin O'Sullivan, and Granville Woods, who is their science engineering tech guy. Okay. So each serves a purpose. Awesome. And you were saying that the, this is going to be a six-issue series? That is correct. It is a six-issue series. Currently, Chapter 1 and Chapter 2 are completed. The third chapter is being worked on by Emily right now as we speak. And then when that is completed, I'm looking to go to a Kickstarter or Indiegogo-type crowdfunding campaign to finish out the last three issues. Excellent. Excellent. So then are you expecting to ongoingly do more stories in this universe, or is this it and you're moving on to a totally different story? I would love to continue in this universe, not necessarily right now in the comic world, just because it's so expensive sure. and we've been paying for it up until right. this point. Yes, absolutely. So I have diverged a little bit in that I have novellas and short stories really? that are based in this universe. They're essentially prequels okay. to before when the webcomic starts. So there's no spoilers. They are standalone stories, but if you read them in conjunction with the webcomic, what happens is they enrich each other. Okay, very cool. And ultimately, my goal is to write a series of novels in this universe, and if money and time permits, also do continuing arcs. I've already mapped out other arcs in this whole world and sure. this history, Nice, but... As you know, comics are expensive, right. and uh, you can only do so much, so I'll do as much as I can. I have to say it's really refreshing to hear somebody say, oh yeah, it's going to be six issues, and that's what we're going to do, and like have a plan. Because so much of the time we talk to people, especially in the artist alley and indie world, where they're like, oh, I don't know how long it's going to go, I'm just making them. <laughs> you know, and it's like, it's nice to speak with somebody who's really clear about, this is what I'm going to do, I have a plan, you know? Oh, there's a definite plan. There is a beginning, a middle, and an end to awesome. this particular series. Leaves plenty of room at the end to continue you on in a lot of different directions. It just depends on what direction I want to go in. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so can you tell us a little bit of the inspiration about this? Where did this, where you get the idea from? Well, yeah, that's the million dollar question. <laughs> it's a combination of things. One, I was a big X-Files fan, so sure, I figured, sure. we, well, hey, there's, yeah. <laughs> hey, there's got to be someone before Mulder and Scully, so right. why not Hunter and O'Sullivan? There you go. Awesome. And also, while I was at the UCLA MFA screenwriting program, because I have a film and TV background, okay. I wrote a script for the Sloan Fellowship, which actually won, that was about a astronomer, it's a biopic, uh, by the name of Mina Fleming, who was a Scottish immigrant who came to this country in the late 1800s, penniless, pregnant, and abandoned by her husband. Uh, she found work as a maid with the director of the Harvard Observatory. He discovered she was very detail-oriented, hired her. To make a long story short, she ended up becoming an astronomer, developing a new awesome. stellar system, awesome. and discovering over 10,000 stars. Very cool. So, so very I had, strong writing background then. Very strong writing background. Yeah, lots good. of research. And so I already was very familiar with that world and that time. And I have an added advantage. My husband is a rocket scientist. Really? Yes, he is. He's <laughs> nice. been with JPL 
for over 30 years. So when I get to the science side. Just call him over. It's like, hey, honey, I got a question. <laughs> nice. And granted, not all of the science is correct because sure. this is fiction. Right. Yeah, it's fiction. But when I can make it right, I do. That's awesome. That's a rare opportunity. Yeah, and so we he has a lot of fun because in this particular episode is number two issue number two, two and issue issue two. Uh, you can tell I call them episodes. I mean, you know, TV land here. Right, right. There is a big bad within the story right. that they have to destroy, and it's science based. Nice, which is fun. But each issue, our team of detectives have uh, one case they have to solve but there's an overall arc that carries through throughout the series and the real big bad that they have to deal with by issue six awesome very cool well this is just really exciting we're so looking forward to reading it and reviewing it on the podcast well thank you for being here oh thank you for talking to us today no problem awesome thank you so much well thanks again madeline for taking time out of your busy table to hang out with us and and give us a little interview we really enjoyed getting to know you a little bit and we did actually have a bunch of fun reading the comic for those of you that would like to follow along at home, you can go to bostonmetaphysicalsociety.com. It's all up there. Currently, I think there's two and a half issues. A little like Two and a quarter. Two and a quarter, yeah. So why don't we go ahead and just uh, read what we have on the About page. The year is 1895, and evil from a parallel dimension escaped and now roams the city of Boston. Our world has developed along the lines of steampunk technology, but with a modern twist. Here exists steam-driven, rudimentary computers and electronics, and dirigibles rule the sky. But with it comes social and political upheaval, as not everyone is comfortable with the change. In fact, many fear it. That fear and the violence that followed caused a psychic rift to puncture the veil of space and time, allowing the entity known as the Shifter to escape. And the only people who stand a chance in hell of destroying it are Samuel Hunter, ex-Pinkerton detective, Caitlin O'Sullivan, medium and spirit photographer, and Granville Woods, scientist extraordinaire. They are the Boston Metaphysical Society. Wish them luck. They're going to need it. Why don't we just go ahead and jump into the story? Joe, you want to give us like a little a little kind of download about the, the premise? So, as his first assistant spirit photographer dies, at the funeral, he is observed by a, another strange secret society consisting of Alexander Graham Bell, yeah, Harry Houdini, Nikola Tesla, and Thomas Edison. Which they, they call themselves Beth, B-E-T-H. Mm -hmm. For Bell, Edison, Tesla, Houdini. And they don't really interact very much with our main character. Not much, except you later find out that Beth and the Boston Metaphysical Society are actually both looking for the same entity, the shifter. Who seems like the big bad that she mentioned in the yeah yeah in the interview. So there's a couple other things that you run into along the way, but that mm. definitely seems to be the big yeah. the big trouble coming. Yeah. So far it's been Hunter introduce getting introduced to Caitlin, Caitlin O'Sullivan, his former assistant's daughter, who's also a medium. Yeah, and there's a lot of friction with Caitlin's mother. Caitlin does not want or I guess Mrs. O'Sullivan. She really does not want her daughter to get involved because as a direct result of being involved, her husband passed away was uh, murdered in their most recent investigation. But, of course, Caitlin is desperate to make money for her household. And take she, up her father's profession. Right. And she obviously, as you go deeper into the comics, she learned a lot from her father mm -hmm. about how to do some different things. She you know, is later on talking to Granville, who is their resident scientist extraordinaire, and he is has some assumptions about how spirit photography works and how medium stuff works and she actually is correcting him and sharing some secrets mm. that her father did that Granville didn't even know about, that he just assumed that he knew the right way, but it's actually a little different. Yeah. You know, different ingredients and different methods for things. And and so she's very well prepared to re to fill her father's shoes. At least in the laboratory. Out in the field, a little less so. <laughs> Not quite yet. Her yeah. first time out, almost killed. <laughs> I know. I was kind of like, oh, man, are they just going to kill her right out? But no, she she managed to make it through. But mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I like the idea of using a spirit photographer. I mean, obviously, that's the appropriate thing for the time period, mm -hmm. you know, but spirit photography, I don't think is something I've seen a lot of outside of what Fatal Frame, the that, game. That's pretty much the only thing I could think of. Yeah, I mean, that's the first thing that popped into my mind was that. So that's it's pretty darn cool. I mean, I guess it's sort of cheating, though, if you're a medium, you're like, well, there it is, the kink. <laughs> you know? Smile. Ghosts are like, what? <laughs> After she basically joins the team, sort of provisionally, she kind of muscles her way in, really. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Hunter Sneaks. gets called over to his 
wife's, his, his deceased wife's father's place to try and deal with a spirit there. Mm-hmm. And she's sneaking in through yeah, the she back. She sneaks in the back and his, I guess, ex-father-in-law, Jonathan Wedsmer, is pretty much threatening to have her taken away by the police if she's not who she says she is. And she mm-hmm. just comes in saying, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm Hunter's assistant. And so she pretty much just kind of like basically says, well, you're either going to have to throw me in jail or you're going to have to let me be your assistant. It's pretty desperate. Yeah. You get the sense that uh, Madeline wants to talk a little bit about the, you know, the difference in class systems. Right. Yeah. There's... You know, because she's a poor Irish, uh, Irish girl. She like has a very distinct accent, mm-hmm. you know, and so she's in a sort of a desperate in serious way when it comes to her finances with her mother, especially with her father gone. And so she feels like it's her job and it is to take up the mantle and pay the family bills and take care of her mother. And this is really the only way that she knows how. So she's she's pretty aggressive about getting in there. I like some of the old-timey ways that they talked, some of the, the vernacular they used. Sure. So as they go deeper into their investigation, they start to see that things are connected and this the, this shifter character is uh, something that's kind of lurking around in the background. They're not dealing directly with him right away, or I guess it. Mm-hmm. It's not really clear if there's a gender associated yet. So also, Beth, Bell, Edison, Tesla, and Houdini group are kind of lurking around and eventually end up making contact with Hunter. And they're sort of div- divided about whether or not they want to work with them. Mm-hmm. I want, it's, is it they're who, divided who, about whether they should study the shifter or, or kill, kill it. it. Yeah, you know, it's really... That was one of the things I had a, had a big kick out of, is yeah. watching these really famous historical figures just bicker like little girls. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you well, know you want it, too, because as soon as you see all four of them, you're just like, okay, you can't herd cats like that. That's just going to yeah. get... You get four guys who are all used to being the smartest man in the room, all in the same room. <laughs> it's just a little... Definitely asking for trouble. No, it was four it... dumb guys, essentially. <laughs> yeah. Mini pissing contests. It's always well, I mean, it's almost funny how kind of casual and comical they can be with each other. Like at the funeral, in the very beginning, Edison is standing next to Tesla, and Tesla says some kind of snarky, shitty comment, which is sort of his personality, mm-hmm. as as suggested here, and... Seemingly in a lot of a lot of fiction that Tesla comes up and he seems sort of like full of himself and kind of snarky. So Edison leans over and just calls him an ass. <laughs> it's just kind of like, oh, well, I guess they're not really sort of super uptight, you know, infallible historical figures that we're going to have like real people here. And it is funny to see them interact with each other. It kind of brings them down to, I guess, our level or something. And it lets us lets them be real characters instead of these, you know, untouchable figures from history. I enjoyed that human humanizing yeah. of them a little bit. I just got like a little fanboy kick out of just seeing them in the comic. That was a cool little team to put together. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. I know, right? Yeah. I like seeing them all stand around over at Tesla's, or I guess at the Beth headquarters, and mm. and they're just like, me, 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 me. I'm going to do this. Me, 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 me. It's kind of a League of Extraordinary Gentlemen I was of just Science. Say, yeah. Right, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> it. That's really funny. I also really liked how I was actually able to recognize Tesla almost immediately with that <laughs> Yeah, he has haircut. his unique look. And then, the, of course, the electricity in the background, you're just kind of like, <laughs> Oh, yeah, right with the coil. There's like coils everywhere, you know? Yeah. One thing that had me spun, and I actually had to go out and, and look up what young Edison looked like, because mm-hmm. when you see pictures of Edison, it's like old man Edison, you yeah. know? And so I had to look up pictures like, wait, is that, wait, I have no idea what young Edison looks like. And so sure enough, I looked it up. It's like, oh, that's a really good rendering of Edison. Him and Houdini actually look a lot alike. They do. I know, right? It's so funny. I love how Houdini's always in like a red tux. Yeah. I got a kick out of how both groups are kind of working on the same thing, the Boston Metaphysical Society and Beth, they're both circling around the same series of paranormal events mm-hmm. and dealing with it in their own way. Yeah. And, you know, one of them has essentially more like street smarts and yeah. more what? experience in the field. The detective's making a map of all the locations. Where right. And all the struggling. scientific guys are like, some map. Psh, psh, psh. Yeah. They're just being all snarky yeah, about we're it. We're making a compass that tells us where the barometric pressure drops. Yeah, and they're out there like on the side of this hill with this big, uh-huh. giant, overwhelming machine. Oh, we got to follow the needle, and we're trying to calibrate it. Yeah. And, you know, some the Tesla's in the back, like that's not going to work. You're full of shit. No, no, no. You know. No, I love how in their laboratory they've got all the Tesla coils and science going on all around them, and they're out there in the field with this little wooden box that has clockworks on the side. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's kind of fun to see the steampunk stuff going on with all of the the actual guys that were involved with electricity. It's sort of an interesting combination because mm-hmm. typically steampunk is what would replace the electrical. Yeah technology it's sort of an interesting choice to to do i was concerned that it was going to be kind of confusing and odd it's sort of like why is there steam technology when there's electrical technology Mm -hmm. 
But it seems like really the Beth group are the only guys that have access to it, really. Yeah. Well, I know. I guess that's not really true because then at one point when the BMS, they're fighting a supernatural entity in the second issue, they actually use some kind of a electronic device to fight it, right? That's, oh, but Granville's like a scientist as oh, well. Oh, that's true. That's so. true. Yeah. Gra- actually, they were saying that Edison stole some of Granville's work, right? Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Right. And that's one of the reasons why. Because Edison's sort of standoffish. And Granville's a, a, a black gentleman. And so... You know, that that's sort of an interesting also sort of a cultural spin because that was, you know, obviously a much bigger deal back then. Mm-hmm. And uh, and, you know, let alone him being, you know, a, an intelligent scientist that, you know, he was not getting the appreciation he deserved. But it turns out that on top of that, Edison actually stole some of his stuff and it just makes Edison uncomfortable. You know, yeah. It's like a, a writer who, you know, stole somebody else's work having hanging around the other writer. You know, I can only imagine how awkward that would be. Mm. So any other thoughts about the about the story, you guys? It's pretty engaging. It, it was a. Page turner definitely it definitely keeps you interested. There's not a lot of time spent sort of slow. It's a quick comic. Not in that it's a fast read, but that there's a lot going on. Yeah, and the thing know? that I appreciate it uh, appreciate about it too is the fact that you have these typically marginalized peoples as the main character cast, but they don't dwell on it so much where they're just beating you in the face with it. It's just right. kind of mm-hmm. look. Just, it's Tesla. It's like love or, my Tesla. Or you're just like look. Oh my God, a black scientist. Oh, a woman. Oh, look, I'm such a woman. Oh, my God, I'm such a black scientist. <laughs> it's, it's, it, they're just there. Yeah, that's a dangerous thing. That becomes trope really fast. Yeah. When, well, you don't want to get preached at. Nobody yeah. likes to get preached at. When, when the hero characters, oh, yes, I work with a black man and a woman. Look how gentle my heart is. Right. <laughs> or even even the fact that, the, you know, they're not just sitting there going, oh, woe is me. I'm a woman in this time period mm-hmm. and I'm trying to just do my science thing or my supernatural thing. Yeah, there's none of that. It's just, okay, we are these things. I mean, they address can... it so that it's appropriate. Yeah. It's not like they slip right. through the world and don't come up against any kind of resistance or, yeah. or yeah, bigotry. It's, but it's really they do, like but a... it's not It's not like a focal point. Yeah. And, the, and the girl right. does get a little bit of the, uh, the tropey, spunky Irish lass going on. Oh, you men talk too much. And she, <laughs> and she hey, jumps mom's... into the fray. Yeah. <laughs> right, but it's never... I think it's probably my... ham-fisted. No. Right, no. I was going to say probably one of the only things that I'm hoping develops more is that I find myself interested in the characters, but I'm not quite like rooting for them yet. Like, I don't feel like I know them enough and and have an invested interest in what happens to them. Mm -hmm. And it's because there's been a lot going on. There's a lot of world building happening. There hasn't been a lot of time to do these slower sections where they do a lot of character development. And I find that if you're going to have time to do character development, you have to have already kind of hooked somebody in because that mm-hmm. is t- typically much slower. I almost root for the photographer a little more than the actual yeah. character just because you know a little more about her past. You know that her mm-hmm. father died, you know. Right, and she's, she's sort of the from. underdog. She's exactly. struggling. She's spunky. She's putting herself out there. Everybody else just kind of, they are who they are. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think the two assistants actually have the most interesting backstory at this point. Absolutely, yeah. Although, obviously, Hunter is definitely the main character in this. Oh, yeah. It's the main through line through all this. But it, it is, you're right. Like, that's, I think that his, mm-hmm. you know, sidekicks or assistants yeah, definitely he's got are this more big, endearing. He's got this big dark cloud hovering over his head. And yeah, about his wife passing yeah. away. I'm looking it, forward it to learning about that for real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I want to learn more about that. You know, what, what's interesting is the first thing that popped into my head when they said that his wife was a medium and they're paranormal investigators. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it reminded me of the Warrens right away, like as in Lorraine Warren and her husband, famous for the Amityville. And actually, they recently had had them as actually young people in a movie, The Conjuring. Mm-hmm. And it immediately made me think of the two of them as sort of like a I don't know if that was an influence of any kind, but that definitely felt like it. And even in the The Conjuring, there was a dynamic where Lorraine being the medium who's sort of exposed and sensitive to these things, which is, you know, her ability, but also kind of a burden at the her same time. Her gift and her curse at the same right, time. Right, exactly. And that's definitely seemingly what happened with with Hunter's wife, is that something happened in their paranormal research. And so I'm looking forward to learning about that backstory mm-hmm. so that I can feel more connected and invested with Hunter. Because I want to like him, and he's he comes across as cool. He's got a good character design. He's interesting. He's got a cool backstory, but there hasn't been a lot of development with him yet. And I'm looking forward as we get deeper into the comic to learn more about him. I'd agree. So any other thoughts about the story before we move into talking a little about the art? All right. So my one thing that I got to get off my chest, the biggest gripe I have, is because I'm an archer. (laughs) And the first two pages, Hunter is using a compound bow. And that is not developed until 1966. 
And I know they've got, you know, like... It's the, like alternate timeline stuff. They've got a friggin' particle cannon or whatever. Plasma cannon on plasma, a tank. On a tank. Electroplasma gun is what he But it, it just seems ridiculous to have a compound <laughs> bow in... Well, and, and more than that, it's interesting because they don't use it again. And well, no, it shows seen. up, like, on uh, the father-in-law's wall in the background at one point. Right, but it's not, like, his go-to weapon. No. It would be one thing if maybe they said Granville actually developed it for him, and it's kind of like a, a fixture for his character. Mm-hmm. But you're right, it was that was a little odd. Well, before we move into talking about the art, why don't we go ahead and take a quick musical break? You're listening to Geek Life. Stick with us. to Geek Life. We're about to jump into the art on Boston Metaphysical Society, but first, I think JP has something to say about a audiobook. Yeah, so this podcast is sponsored by Audible. You can go to audibletrial.com forward slash geeklife and get a free audiobook download and try one month of their excellent service. Along with the free credit for one book each month, you get 30% off of their entire catalog, which is freaking huge. Indeed. It's like Christmas every single first of the month. It's like, oh, squee, I get a new credit. So this month I spent my credit on a book because I'm sort of a miser, so I look for books that are long. (laughs) Well, I found a book that was 36 hours. Actually, 37 hours. It's so big. But I was looking through a bunch of lists of... (laughs) That's what she said. (laughs) So I was looking through a bunch of lists for, like, really good, like, supernatural stuff because it's, you know, October, right? One of the ones that came up for some reason on a zombie list, even though it was this is really more of like a vampire sort of book, is The Passage by Justin Cronin, narrated by Scott Brick, Adenril Ojo, and Abby Creighton. It is excellent. This book is so interesting. It's, I would say some of the people that complained about it in the reviews, which of course I always read the reviews before I get a book, some of the people that have complained about it have complained that it's maybe too long and that it also has, like there's a big jump in time in the book. And at first I was a little wary of it, that idea of a big, big jump happening. But then again, I also thought that's interesting because that, for me, is one of the reasons why I like vampire fiction is because you get to play with the immortality and have the same characters exist through a long span of time and see how they interact with the world changing around them. So it was a happy surprise when I realized that what they were going to do is pretty much squeeze all the things that I like into one book. (laughs) There's like secret government conspiracy bioweapon stuff going on. There's shit goes sideways and oh no, apocalypse time. And then it jumps like a hundred years into the future to a breakaway society of people that have managed to survive behind, like figured out how to live in this world where the darkness in, in the evening is like just crawling with murderous vampires. And the, the vampires are more animal-like, really. They're not like, you know, suave dudes seducting people. They're sort more of like... 30 Days of Night? Yeah, more... Well, more like or that, more or maybe... Strainy. Maybe... Say what? More and more strainy. Yeah, more the strainy kind. Thank you know? God. Right? Yeah, I agree. I agree. I was really glad that it went in that direction. And I can see why people were... Why someone had this on a zombie list is because it, it sort of fits that feeling a little bit more. But wait, John, if the vampires only come out at night, when do you get to see them glitter? <laughs> Never, ever in life, forever and always. They ate those ones. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> no, so it's cool because that jump in time, which you'd think would be kind of awkward, actually works really well because you get to see 
Cronin's vision for what it would be like for people that m- managed to figure out how to live in this sort of horrible, dangerous new environment in this blockaded city. And they came up with their own political system. They came up with their own defenses and everything like that. And there's actually a whole culture built around being part of what they call the watch, which are basically people that are watching the walls at night and looking for, you know, looking for sign. They call them virals or smokes because I guess they smoke when they get hit by light. Anyway, so it's really cool because you get to have kind of all those different pieces of those that sort of supernatural post-apocalyptic stuff. And then eventually a group of them end up leaving the safety of the compound and going on a trip. And so then you get the travel by day, bunker down at night, stuff's attacking you thing. And and it just it just keeps going. And I'm not even quite done with it yet. I probably have maybe a quarter of it left. But it's just so cool because there's so much that the book satisfies thematically – tone wise you get to enjoy so many of those different like really cool scenarios you know one thing that i always am drawn to is the what's called desert horror or desert island horror Hmm. where you have a a group of people kind of squeezed together in an oppressive dangerous situation and they start to not trust each other and Hmm. like it's it's a good literary opportunity to investigate people under pressure and i think it's cool and they have even that is is worked in there very skillfully so it's a really it's a really cool book we talked about this a little bit when we reviewed Zombie Killers, but in a real life situation, do you think we would rename anything like virals or smokes or we would just call them vampires, zombies? Well, they actually addressed that a little bit in this. And one of the things, one of the reasons it seems that they go with a different name is that it's somehow, I think, maybe psychologically better to not have all the associations you have with vampires. Mm. And also people are seem to be unwilling to say there's vampires now. You know, because even though these these things are kind of vampires, they're not quite vampires, but that's the closest thing we have in our sort of supernatural mythos in popular culture. And so I think that instead of just being like, well, we thought vampires were this way, but they're really this way and there's vampires now. They're more likely and comfortable to come up with a different way to describe them just because people aren't really willing to commit to now there's vampires. Now there's zombies. They're real. It's like, no, this is a virus, and it's like that, but it's not really that, you know? And this way, we don't think there's thousands of Bella Lugosi's outside at nighttime. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Running around, blah, blah, blah. And teenage girls aren't trying to make out with them. Exactly. <laughs> They're not trying to go to high school. I mean, we could go on for a while, right? Uh, yeah, anyway. So, so the book is The Passage by Justin Cronin, narrated by Scott Brick. I'm not going to say the other names. <laughs> it's super entertaining. I'm really enjoying it a lot. If you guys want a lot of bang for your buck, for that free credit you can get by going to audibletrial.com forward slash geek life. This is a great place to start. This is a good long book. You get a real sense of what it's like to listen to an audiobook if you've never done it before, or just a really, really good long story that's totally interesting and engaging and has put me completely in the hole with all of my podcasts. I'm so behind on all the podcasts mm-hmm. I listen to because this is all I've been listening to. <laughs> anyway, so again, the book is The Passage by Justin Cronin. Definitely highly recommended. Good stuff. So we're talking about Boston Metaphysical Society today. The artwork. The artwork. Marcus, what was some of your thoughts about the artwork on the BMS? Uh, starting with uh, the fact that I, I'm really impressed with it. I thought that it was of a higher caliber than most web comics that I see. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of web comics out there. And I mean, it, it, it's, it's a good thing because the internet allows people to just create and put up. But I feel like that's also sort of... Uh, Almost a hindrance because I feel like there's a lot of poor quality comics that are super online. low barrier to entry. Exactly, super low. You can just a- anybody can go to Blogspot and start throwing up garbage. And just like uh, you know, you say the word comic book and people automatically associate it with superheroes nowadays. I feel like it's almost happening with web comics where you say web comic and you think of the quality that you see on most web comics. Yeah, like kind of mediocre, super iconic, cartoony type style, mm-hmm. sort of hit and miss. Or, um, you know, humor wise. So when you see ones like this, it stands out because the artwork was at the level that it was. So I was really impressed with yeah, it definitely. the most of the way through. One of the things that stood out to me right away was the creature design. I really like the creature design of the supernatural characters mm-hmm. right off the bat, that sort of ghoul-like thing that they were fighting with when yeah. uh, Hunter and his original partner ends up getting killed. Like That was a really cool creature. And then later on, they, they fight what looks like some kind of a construct or something. No, the magnet monster. Yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah, so it's really like really interesting creature design. I like that a lot because that's one thing that you that really sets something apart when you're dealing with something that's supernatural and you have a lot of flexibility with, you know, because if it's period, it's going to have to have correct clothing. It's going to have to have correct vernacular. It's going to have to have correct cultural situations. And so one of the places that I think 
Madeline and her artists have uh, a lot of flexibility to be able to really express themselves freely without being constrained by it being a period piece. Even though it's steampunk kind of alternate history, they're still trying to keep it in that Victorian era kind of thing. It allows for a lot of really cool flexibility. And I think that that's one of the places that I was right away excited about. And and I was not disappointed. I really enjoyed the creature the creature design a lot. I feel like uh, because the core, they're, they're, you know, demons and or ghosts. Right. The fundamental idea in your head is, you know, well, in my head, at least, I think of Blinky from Pac-Man. Um, <laughs> and so when That's someone awesome. is able to take a character or a, a type of uh, creature and make their own vision out of it, like, I, I really enjoy that. Totally. Mm-hmm. One of the things I liked a lot was the palette. Because, you know, back then, that's going to be a lot of earth tones and, you know, you know, in the clothing and the environment and, and the, the buildings and stuff. And as we all know from games like Grand Theft Auto 4, when it's all like these sort of earthy brown sort of tones, kind of it's, sometimes it's like, you know, the mud simulator. And I'm just glad that it didn't get to that muddy place. It managed to to maintain good separation with the characters They had, you know, able to have sort of colorful clothes and things like that, but not have it be out of place. You know, and said it, but it not didn't it didn't come across like this just super muddy dark palette. I thought yeah, that was, it was cool. definitely indicative tone of tone in a lot of areas. But yeah. I also liked how at the same time when you had scene changes and things like that, there was actually a little bit of shift in the palette, but it still read as if it were the same comic. Like exa- for example, the beginning of the comic, you have a lot of violets, and I know it's because it's nighttime and that sort of thing. Right. But when you switch to say the scene uh, where Tesla and all those homies. Meet for the first time. Where they're all getting the, together. The Beth homies. Right. Yeah. All the Beth homies are all together, all up in this crib and all that shit. And actually, it was, I, I was actually sort of shocked a little bit because it was a lot of these bright blues, but at the same time, it's still red as the same world to me. So there's a lot because of. Because they're in range. the presence of all the, like, you know, the Tesla coils and electricity and stuff. And, right. Yeah. So it's a good lesson that just because you pick a palette for your world doesn't mean you're stuck with like the same six colors. There's so many, there's such a range in between that you could stay within if you pick the right thing for your work well and you're right i like the i really enjoyed the palette right in the beginning when they're doing nighttime and that's that's uh not always easy to do well and it, it came across as really good and and you're right though it did still manage to fit into the yeah. same universe it didn't feel out of place and what i think was uh, really great actually was the uh dialogue boxes in that accent yellow color because yeah. it was enough not to overpower but it easily drew your eyes throughout the work mm-hmm. definitely I, although sometimes those those dialogue boxes the backgrounds were in value, a little too similar. Not necessarily in color, yeah. but so, that would have been my only real critique on the on the yeah. uh, balloons is that like they kind of fell into the background a little bit. Yeah, and, 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 and only in only certain scenes, not in everything. It wasn't. Far. It was pretty rare, but there was a couple times where I had to really kind of squint and look and lean in to see where the tail was going. Yeah, it was still mm-hmm. clear that it was a box. It was still clear, you know, that it was kind of near the person that was talking. But there's a lot of careful work that goes into aiming that tail right at the person's yeah. mouth and at the correct person and fiddling that has to go on with the dialogue boxes and and sometimes it's kind of like it's really hard when there's not a clear defined like this is who's talking right now and i think i know what that is too similar things have happened to me in other projects and mm-hmm. and the thing is they obviously have like a yellow that's distinctively for the dialogue boxes and some of the caption boxes too but at the same time, when you put that same shade against a lot of different things and a lot of different scenes, like you know, it's going to fade in or pop out a lot more. Yeah. So optically, it wouldn't really kill you to break your convention to make it look like it's the same color, but not and still make it pop against the background. I think you could even just do something like a slightly darker valued version of the color you choose for the dialogue box to ring the, the dialogue box. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I personally, I like contour. That's one thing that I really enjoy in comics. And I look, you know, right at the the inking and the contour and the pencil work and all that right away. And, you know, definitely drawn more towards that sort of realm instead of the painterly, not really any defining lines around the edges. Not that I dislike that, but that's definitely more something that I'm drawn to. And so for me, I think that there'd be nothing wrong with doing something, like I said, even just like a darker value kind of just stroke around the outside would be nice to see. I almost feel like adding the color to it sort of made the word bubbles almost part of the artwork. Mm-hmm. And I mean, while there's something to be said for that, I, I kind of just wish they were white. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but then again, I think you and I are both, I mean, obviously you and I both prefer that yeah. and that's the way we draw it. Yeah. You know, I could, so. I could honestly go either way on that. I don't yeah. think it's too much of a problem, but I also just know that sometimes when you make conventions for certain things, like there's a comic where I made out of several gray tones and I only had like my set of six that I was going to use mm-hmm. and I would not break convention. But at the same time, you sort of got to break convention in order to make it work. And nobody's going to go through your work with an eyedropper and be like, that yellow is not the same yellow as the first page. The last two codes in the hex code are wrong. Exactly. wrong they're wrong. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's. Yeah. 
So unless there's hex Nazis out there, then perhaps it's not a big deal. Yeah. And honestly, like they're going to bitch about the JPEG artifacting first, I think. Yeah, probably. That, that was actually one thing that was really unfortunate. And it's, it's, it's really unfortunate because it has nothing to do with the original art and has everything yeah. to do with the optimization for the web. But there was some artifacting. And I think that the the compression for web was a little aggressive on some mm. of these pictures. I don't know what all the fancy words are for it, but it was it was loading a little slow for me. The loading, website yeah. loaded, yeah, same really here. slow for me. Actually. I didn't have too That's much trouble with that, but I found that there was some kind of jaggy lines on some of the on some of the pencil and the pencil yeah. on some of the inking. Mm-hmm. And speaking of inking, I and this is this is personal preference here, but I I like it when there's a lot of varying line weight, and this one had like just one line weight. I mean, it was yeah. like very clearly. You know, if it was drawn by, was it drawn like an analog style first? I don't it, know, but it definitely it looked like that, micron pen kind of stuff. It had that really intuitive sort of visceral hand. Yeah, there was a sort of sketchy work. sort of quality, but mm-hmm. and I don't mean sketchy as in unfinished, but sketchy as in like lots of lines built up to make make that sort of mm-hmm. suggestion. That's what's called a contour line in sure. general. There's two different styles, that, or yeah, the two different styles that we battle with is is the regular, the brush style with a varying width, and then contour line, which is more of a focus on the forms than the actual line itself. And uh, personally, I actually really like contour style drawing because I don't see it done very well. Sometimes you see a lot of people who are beginner artists where they rely on the same width of a of a, a pen like a liner pen which is also why you get a lot of shit for doing that in art school just so you know um <laughs> yeah where they rely on the uniform width of a micron pen because they don't know how to, they don't have the arm control to be able to make the line vary at the time at, but i think it's easy to i think it's also fair to say that when you're using something like that kind of a pen you are expected to still build it up in places yeah i think so instead to of a just degree. going one stroke for everything but it allows for other things too sure. where you don't have to completely close your forms there's a lot of uh, parts in this where i thought were really beautiful where they didn't actually like close the form of the face for mm-hmm. example and it just kind of kept going because it's more about you know what the contour creates rather than focusing on the quality of the contour itself. It's definitely a different style, though. And it's, oh yeah, and again, like I, yeah. I started my whole thought with this is a personal preference thing. Yeah, totally. You know, because I mean, it is. It totally is. And I think some people are going to be drawn to that sort of contour style, and some are going to be drawn to the the brushing painterly style. And I definitely yeah. prefer the latter. But I feel like this one was done well. And what I did actually feel about it, I saw in the beginning that it was a lot tighter, and I'm sure that was with this desire to want to sort of impress with really sharp, polished artwork. Sure. But I felt like they could have just kept it as loose in the beginning as they have it towards the later chapters that we're reading, where it just kind of goes off. Yeah, I mean, it gets more confident as you go in, which is not mm-hmm. uncommon yeah. in comics, especially then, independent comics. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, that was just as beautiful. You could, And not that the beginning art wasn't beautiful, because it yeah. was initially stunning. Sure. As soon yeah. as you look at it, you're like, pow, yeah, this is strong work. This is a strong hand. It's awesome. And at some point, that artifacting goes away. Yeah, really? I, yeah. It, like it at the second better. chapter, yeah. I think it pops away. That's but I notice it's not just on the art. The RSS symbol is all artifacted and weird too. I so wonder... it could have something to do with the, their settings for export for web. You know, yeah. if that's yeah, what they're, they're doing. Yeah, hosting or anything that if they're using like an image uploader in WordPress. Yeah, Nura was talking like about there. There's all kinds of different plugins, and sometimes they just garble up images. Yeah, it's probably you know could be anywhere from attempt to save on bandwidth so you can have more viewers sure. before your site gets shut down with your hosting company to you know just want to make it load faster. I mean, Marcus was saying that you know the site was loading slow. I mean, that, that could be an attempt to help people out. Yeah, I mean that's it's it's a battle that you're just going to have to fight every time. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. That's always an issue. I feel so bad though because I know there were some textures in there that were really delicate that totally got wrecked by artifacting, which is yeah. the little square things that, that you guys see on JPEGs. Yeah. One of the one of the things that I did want to point out is that there was really tasteful use of textures here. Yes. There's, there are a lot of webcomics we see because obviously we read lots of webcomics <laughs> considering this is the webcomic po- or the, the indie comic podcast. And and man, some people go way overboard with that and use it on freaking everything. Speaking of those delicate textures, yeah, yeah. in this comic. And this is, it does a good job. It's really, it's it's not on everything. It's on the things that where it's appropriate. It's on like, you know, the stone walls and the earth and, you know, that kind of stuff. It's not on everything. It's not on the drapery. It's not mm-hmm. on the people. It's, you know, it's like a, a lot of the time they'll not do it on flesh, but they'll do it on like everything. Other than that, and I feel like it was very carefully chosen and it felt right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so, too. And yeah. now there was something interesting. Um, when you look through a few pages, you actually see that contour line run past the panel borders mm-hmm. and go into the gutters. And at first I was like, well, seems a little sloppy. Why, I wonder why they didn't clean that up. But actually, as I continued through the book, it started adding a lot of character. Yeah. 
to it and i thought oh that's well very, that's yeah, really like cool again actually signature style yeah to yeah. see the edge of the construction lines but it wasn't overdone and it wasn't trying to be like look i'm on purpose it, <laughs> like no really it's my style yeah so i actually sort of come to appreciate it first i was thrown off but then it really grew on me i think that were i to have any kind of criticism i would say that it felt like some of the poses especially in the, the more dynamic scenes seemed a little bit sort of stiff yeah like she was trying to draw from a model and just had the model holding the action or just pose. not drawing from reference at all and no. i know yeah. i know that all of our regular listeners are, are moaning right now because i always harp on that but that's like such a big deal <laughs> no. especially if you're drawing people you really need to you, have you some gotta have reference. i mean like if you i mean i guarantee you that if you if you you know look at anything that you're like wow that is gorgeous it's either very likely has strong reference work and and uh, been workshopped or they've done it so many times from reference that they don't really need the reference anymore but the reference is part of that and I feel like especially when you're not doing the kind of more iconic, cartoony sort of style, you, you cannot get away without using that. And speaking of reference, I do think that the reference on the clothes were really excellent. The clothes really seemed correct. Because you know how even if you don't really know how something is supposed to look, all of the nitty gritty details, like there's supposed to be 10 buttons instead of eight. <laughs> like, I don't know those kind of things. But there's some somehow our subconscious can pick something out when it's not right. And I never once felt like that doesn't seem like the right kind of clothes. It always mm -hmm. felt just really smooth and clean. And, and there's definitely a lot of research done into that one. And, and in that capacity, there was obviously a lot of work and reference done, but it did feel kind of like some of the, some of just the stances. And that's sometimes the hardest thing to make look natural is when someone's just standing around instead of in a sort yeah. of a dynamic movement. But there was a sort of, sort of rigid look at times and it smooths out as you get deeper into the comic which is mm -hmm. which is common there's a really popular uh, figure drawing book from uh you know early 1900s i want to say like 1920 or 1930 by mm -hmm. andrew loomis called figure drawing for all it's worth and one of the passages in that book it says pretty much if you don't know what something looks like find out there's no shame <laughs> in taking a reference photo in yeah. fact it's almost expected because it's what's worse is when it's obvious you didn't know what a hand looks like and you just tried to throw it down there anyway you don't really have an excuse after that point and i'm not saying that the art in this book is even close to that atrocious no, level no, no, that no, you no. see in a lot of beginner books it's definitely mm -hmm. not but i also kind of think that there, there are a little a, a few parts that you can fudge things but it's sort of sometimes if you do it too much it'll i know there's time constraints and deadlines and that sort mm -hmm. of thing but if you do it too much it sort of does stand out and no matter what's actually happening in your life you know as as people who consume the work it, it doesn't really matter to us we just don't want to be thrown out of the illusion of the book by going oh my we god want, we want all the things yeah and we want them yeah. now i don't care how hard it is i came right off of the back of reading another web comic where the poses were extremely rigid and i didn't notice anything at mm -hmm. all to be honest i thought yeah everything looked natural i i was just continuously amazed well i mean you know my books. observation comes from looking for something to talk about yeah. you know like we i read these comics with a fine-tooth comb mm -hmm. looking for something to to say and you know comments to make and things to appreciate, constructive criticism. I mean, that's the whole idea. And so I think that if I were to just be casually reading this, I probably wouldn't have even noticed. Yeah. You know, but coming at it with that kind of a very careful sort of magnifying glass, mm -hmm. you're going to come across stuff. Yeah. And like you said, it's not something that really stands out like, wow, that's awkward looking. It's just not as nice as it could be. You yeah, know? At, at the worst, it looks like someone's shirt is starched a little too much. Yeah, there you yeah. go. Yeah, yeah. Well, I also tend to think, too, that when you have a, a style that's so carefully drawn like this mm -hmm. style is, too, it, it's very easy to make to have it in danger of making the figures look too rigid because yeah. you've got a lot of careful contours going in there. Mm -hmm. I mean, the same thing with other line drawing styles, but when people try to make their work too clean, sometimes it makes it really awkward in, in terms of the, the quality of your figure. Yeah. Speaking of that very meticulous, you know, very careful style, one thing that I really did like is that if you see the line art for some of the far off background stuff starts to get very sketchy, which I think is super sexy. I think that's really cool. <laughs> I mean, really, it's 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 neat when it's not all She's sort of like married, super JP. careful. <laughs> no, it's not all like super careful, you know, meticulous background stuff because that can get kind of. I don't know. I mean, it can get kind of tiresome. And I think mm -hmm. it's it's nice to 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 do things to pull our attention towards the, what's important. Yeah. And you see people use sort of muted palette in comparison to the characters. Sometimes you see people sort of fade things a little bit. And that that's that's pretty cool. But I really like how how, you know, there's a particular scene I'm thinking of where they're all out on the street and you've got these you know, beautiful period, how, you know, buildings and this like little cobble street going on. And when you look way deep down in the street as it kind of disappears off into the fog some of the lines of the houses and the windows and stuff get a little bit more gestural 
And I found that very attractive. Use of atmospheric perspective in line as opposed to in painting where it's a lot easier to make things lighter. Yeah, you which gotta, is really cool. And I think, I think pretty ballsy. Yeah, you really. got to come up with different strategies when you're just using line. It's really That's a really great way of doing it. I know, I, I know that some people like to hatch over it sometimes mm-hmm. in the background, even though their lines are really tight. But, but it's actually really rare that you see something like this, yeah. or at least in what I've seen. So It's pretty cool. It's gorgeous. So final thoughts, you guys? You should probably read it. Yes, I mean, I know that's redundant, read but read the damn comic. <laughs> so if you're wondering, hey, this sounds like a really cool comic and how can I support them? Actually, at this very moment, there is a Kickstarter going on to help Madeline fund issues three, four and five. Like she was saying in the interview, when we met her Big at wow. Big Wow, yeah. she had not actually started that yet. And she was preparing for that. But now, as of this recording uh, and when this releases, they'll still be, I think, you know, well over 20 days left in the in the Kickstarter. So. You just go to Kickstarter and search for Boston Metaphysical Society. You'll be able to find it right away. It's a, it's a really great project. There's lots of really cool things for backers. They're actually having some pretty good success. They've only been going for, I think, three or four days at the time of this recording. And it looks promising. But as always, people who like to support people on Kickstarter, it's it's a great thing to support you guys. It's really cool. And if you can't back it, put it on your Facebook and share it with your friends. If you think it's a cool project, just social media the heck out of it. Just yeah, go it doesn't crazy. cost anything to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And that's really the best way for things to get spread around. It really is. And, you know, Madeline's an a absolute animal when it comes to her advertising. And, and she's all over Twitter and is really, really good about all that. And you know, this is a good comic. It really deserves your attention and it deserves to get funded so that we can see more of it because I, I can't wait for, for the enjoying the further adventures of the Boston Metaphysical Society. So cost nothing to share it and your, one of your friends may love it and you'll look cool. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And cool. You're in on the ground floor. That's it. Man. That's it. Well, thanks for listening to Geek Life. We always love to hear from our listeners. Please email us at geeklife at pandamanga.com with your questions, comments, and insights. Anyone interested in becoming a PM contributor? Visit our contact page at contact.pandamanga.com and fill out the form located there. Music has been provided by AirPlus Recordings. As always, links to the artists and songs featured in this episode are available in the show notes at podcast.pandamanga.com. If you'd like more information about AirPlus Recordings, visit airplusrecordings.com. This is Pinku after a really long-ass time. We'll see you later. Podcasts are good. Listen, you please. (laughs) I like that one better. (laughs) Oh, look, I'm such a woman. Oh, my God, I'm such a black scientist.